Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries Podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's episode of Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. I'm Mary Vandenack, founder and CEO at Vandenack Weaver Trulson. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about legal and tax issues, trusts and estates, business succession and exit planning, legal technology, law practice management and leadership, and well-being. First, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Carson Private Client, and Foster Group. Here's a message from Interactive Legal. Technology has become an essential part of our daily lives. However, not all fields have embraced technology. Lawyers, especially estate planning attorneys, need to stay up to date with specific laws and any issues affecting taxes and wealth preservation. Implementing an automated drafting system can help lawyers spend more time with their clients and less time doing back office tasks. Estate planners and law professionals turn to Interactive Legal as their main resource for the latest planning strategies. Interactive Legal provides the most comprehensive productivity system on the market with an easy-to-use document drafting system, extensive continuing education, thought-provoking discussion forums, and more. With Interactive Legal, attorneys get to spend more time with their clients. It's time to connect, collaborate, and create. To learn more about Interactive Legal, visit interactivelegal.com. Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth, giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. On today's episode, my guest is Erica Morehead. Erica is the president and CEO of Collaborative Planning Group, Inc., an organization that she founded. Collaborative Planning consults with clients in regard to life, disability, and long-term care planning. Erica participated on previous episodes with me. We wanted to do one where we just discussed what life insurance is generally, and then we talked about long-term care planning. But Eric and I thought we would talk on one of these more complicated issues that we really like, and so we chose the concept of split-dollar strategies with life insurance to talk about today. So we're going to talk about the strategies generally today, and then we're also going to follow up and talk about a particular case in the area called the Levine case, which has gotten a lot of attention in recent um, times due to the kind of structure of the case. So we'll do that in our next episode. But thanks for joining me again today, Erica. Thanks, Mary. I'm excited to be back. Well, can you start by explaining the concept of split dollar generally? 
Yes. So first of all, I want to be clear. It is not a product. It's a strategy. So it's, I can't call you up and say, I want some split, a split dollar life insurance policy. Well, you wouldn't be the first one to call me up and say that, but it is actually a strategy and not a product. So a split dollar arrangement allows for a life insurance policy's premium, cash value, and death benefit to be split between two parties. We see them use in employer and employee arrangements and frequently used for estate planning as well. These can be structured a couple different ways. There's essentially a set of regulations and PLRs that allow advisors to take parts of an insurance policy and just divvy it up among two or more parties to give them benefits based on what is important to them. For example, cash value, death benefit, premium, etc. So when we talked about life insurance generally, we kind of explained how you pay a dollar of premium and that breaks down into different components. And then there's the death benefit. And in this case, normally it goes to one person. And what you're saying, any of those different facets of the policy can be split in different ways. And it gets really complicated. There's a lot of when you say it's a strategy, the strategies, we could talk for like eight hours and probably not really touch the surface. So could you possibly just give a simple example of the concept? Absolutely. So understanding that it's a strategy that's also supported by legal documents. We'll frequently see maybe a policy where the owner, the premium payer, and the beneficiary don't match. That is not a split dollar arrangement. Split dollar arrangement involves a legal contract, essentially making sure it all works the way it's supposed to. So to give an example, we've had a client who wanted to continue to control the cash value, the ownership of the life insurance policy, and pay the premiums using funds inside of their estate. But we can enter then into a split dollar arrangement with their trust that is outside of their estate therefore able to remove the death benefit from the estate, but keep control of the policy and the cash value inside of the state. It sounds very simple, but there's a lot of technical nuances that we have to pay attention to to make sure that we can preserve the tax-free nature of the death benefit. So there's a design of the overall structure. There's the legal documents that support that structure. And then the coordination of the way the policy is owned and how the beneficiary is designated to make that all work. Absolutely. And that can still sound simple, but it's really not. It's, I, as I was saying to you before we started this, that every time I do a split dollar arrangement of some sort, I have to go reread the rules, and I always find like, okay, it really is actually that complicated. And so we have, you know, with the IRS, so IRS, and, and with every strategy that we use in, estate planning to reduce estate taxes or income taxes. Some of the favorite things that I like to do is the IRS starts looking at, and I was just recently at an ACTEC meeting, and you know, the IRS has said, we're going to read the stuff that you write, and then we're going to you know, analyze that. So we are all telling each other, well, stop writing any articles that say that doesn't work. But that was going on the split dollar at one point, and so the IRS came out. It's 2003, so the current structure is has been in place for a while but there's basically what we call two split dollar regimes that again are way beyond the scope because just explaining each one of those regimes would take us a fair amount of time but could you just generally talk about what they are so we've at least mentioned that because that's certainly a question for somebody knowledgeable that they would know to ask absolutely 
So you've got loan regime split dollar, where the equity buildup is not subject to income or gift taxes, but AFR and interest rate must be charged. Um, then we have economic benefit regime, and the economic benefit is actual measure, actually measured by the term equivalent premium. So, for example, the employer would own cash surrender value and other rights to prevent income and gift taxes, but that split dollar benefit, or excuse me, the economic benefit regime could be used then to remove the death benefit from the business or from the estate but we have to be essentially paying tax on the economic benefit, which oftentimes is the term pricing equivalent. And there's a whole bunch of interesting calculations to those two regimes. So how do you know which one to use? Well, that depends on the age of the insured. Um, The cost of the insurance in the early years will typically be much less than the AFR interest rates, but later on will exceed the interest charge, at which time you can change the regime. It's just important to make sure that the split dollar agreement, actual legal documents, provide for this. And so let's move to, rather than going into all the technical details, which are important, as you mentioned, to have in place for these strategies to work, but let's talk about the strategies generally. So can a split dollar strategy be used as an exit strategy for a business owner? Yes, But as in all planning structures, it will depend on what the client's goals are and the tax efficiency they desire with the structure. The strategy requires duration to build equity or value. And whether that equity is in the policy or whether that equity is in the death benefit can vary based on the design. It's typically not a great tool to build equity in a short period of time. Also, the older the person that we're looking to insure, the higher the cost associated of the policy. So just let me ask a question there then. So this goes to one of my favorite sayings is when you should start your exit planning is when you start your business. Although some people do. I think it was the Kentucky Fried Chicken guy that started his at a really old age. But let's say that your average business owner is starting their business a little younger the time to consider a split dollar strategy as a business exit strategy is early in the life cycle of the business. When you get the call, we've had a lot of the calls the last few years because there's been a lot of businesses selling for significant multiples. It's been a really big thing. But so calling six months before you're going to go put the business up for sale or you're trying to come up with a business exit strategy that makes sense for a split dollar strategy the call six months ahead is probably not. So if you have two guys that are suddenly 79 and they want to do some kind of cross-ownership arrangement and they call you six months ahead of like, well, I've got terminal cancer, I'm going to die. Can we get, one, you're not going to get insured, probably. (laughs) Two, we don't have any time to build any equity, right? So this is a strategy, generally what you're saying for, think about this type of strategy early in the business life cycle. Yeah, time value of money calculation, right? So the longer the time period we have for these plans to grow, that equity to build, the better. This is Mary Vandenack, the host of Legal Visionaries. I want to share some information today about one of our sponsors, Collaborative Planning Group. Collaborative Planning Group is an organization that consults with clients in regard to life insurance, long-term care, and disability. 
I have personally had the opportunity to work with Erica Moorhead, the founder, president, and CEO of Collaborative Planning. I can personally vouch for the knowledge, expertise, and client focus of the organization. Collaborative Planning has expertise and a great process to create solutions, implement strategies, and review plans annually to give their clients peace of mind. An important aspect of working with Collaborative Planning is their true collaboration with other professionals, including financial advisors, attorneys, and CPAs, to ensure that clients have their full team and that all products have a purpose and align with the objectives of the client. Collaborative Planning Group provides honest, transparent, quality life, disability, and long-term care insurance plans that will be there when you need them. Visit collaborativeplanninggroup.com today to learn more. So can you talk a little further about an arrangement that might be used for a business owner? Yeah, so you may have an arrangement where the business is owning the policy, is paying the premium, and they are recovering their costs, the, the premiums that they've paid, by retaining ownership in a portion of the death benefit. That portion of the death benefit, as I mentioned, could be owned by the business. It could also be owned by the business owner, or it could even be owned on a, by a trust for the benefit of the owner to fund the transaction. And so what's important to understand about each of these structures? Yeah. So the tax situation, you know, with the sale of a business, is it going to be subject to capital gain tax, ordinary income tax? Is it inside the estate for federal estate taxes? Where do we want the tax to lie as far as the policy is concerned? For example, if you took a basic life insurance policy and a business owner was deducting the premiums, well, at that point, they're making the death benefit taxable. But if, on the other hand, they're using after-tax dollars to pay for those and they're structurally within the rules and the setup that they need to comply with, that death benefit can be received income tax-free. So there may be instances where people want to deduct a premium and have the tax efficiency at that level, and they're okay with the death benefit being taxable. We just want to make sure we understand where we want the tax burden to lie what we can control and what we can't control. So Erica, so let's talk about, you know, what type of business exit plan would you typically consider a split dollar arrangement for? Would that typically be that you have a closely held business with two or three owners as opposed to this wouldn't be a structure we'd use when they call and say, hey, we're looking at going public or we're looking at selling out to a venture capital firm, this would more typically be, I think, when you're going to have business owners and they may be buying each other out. Would that be correct? So I would say there's there's strategies for all of those situations you just explained. Some may be more estate-focused than necessarily um, buy-sell focused between the shareholders, But it can definitely be an excellent strategy to use with a business with multiple shareholders. So let's just use the example then of a closely held business with two shareholders. What might that look like in terms of a split dollar arrangement for them? 
So I'm going to back up for just a second. If we have two shareholders, it might be administratively feasible to look at a cross-purchase agreement where essentially one business owner owns a policy on the other business owner. They own it outright. They pay the premiums. Maybe the business is distributing funds to cover those premiums and they can personally receive the death benefit. That might be possible. But let's say one of them has a federal estate tax issue. That might be a reason why we would look to use a different strategy than something kind of that simple. (laughs) Uh, When you get into a scenario where you have multiple shareholders, you know, if there's eight shareholders in a company, one primary shareholder with minority shareholders, the likelihood and the administrative burden of making sure all seven of them are going to fund their policies, pay their premiums, et cetera, becomes incredibly more complex. And that is definitely a situation where it might make sense to enter into a split dollar arrangement so the business can own the policy, it can pay the premiums. We could even have the junior partners kick in to pay a portion of those premiums company could gross up to handle the tax that they need to pay on that benefit. Uh, There's a whole bunch of different ways that we could structure those, again, depending on what the business is focused on trying to accomplish. So my simple closely held business with two shareholders could look at first a simple cross-purchase type of agreement and just insurance that's each own or when you really look at a split dollar arrangement is if there are estate tax issues, which we're hoping if they're having to sell their business or if that it's worth enough that they're going to run into that issue. And the exemption is slated to come down. Then if we get to several shareholders, there's a variety of arrangements that could be considered. And the split dollar arrangements in general are going to make, well, I think they make more sense in either of the situations, but they're going to make more sense here. And I think you, what you generally said is that you should have the company be the acquiring party as opposed to, let's say we have eight shareholders. Can you just clarify that? Why do I want to have you know, the company be the acquiring party? Yeah. So maybe look through an example here. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. So let's say the client owned 44% of their company and was just, as I mentioned, had those eight junior partners, just wasn't comfortable that they were going to all make the premium payments if they were part of a cross-purchase agreement. It's the biggest problem we see with cross-purchase agreements is do the people that own the policies actually make the premium payments? Uh, So in this example, he bought a $5 million policy. The junior partners are paying half the premiums. The company is paying the remaining portion of the premiums. The junior partners own only the right to the death benefit, not the cash value, and their portion is used to buy out his interest. The death benefit will come to the company income tax-free. 44% of the basis step up will go to the primary shareholder. The junior partner's 56% will increase by the 56% of the $5 million when the company redeems $5 million of those shares. And that this particular instance, the policy owner is a trust that own the 44% of the client's interest. So they're paying the non-deductible premium, thus preserving the tax-free nature of the death benefit. There is a cost along the way for the split dollar arrangement. But by purchasing the stock, they've stepped up the basis in the shares. 
So the cost basis is increased to what the per to what the purchaser paid for the stock. In this case, you can get an income tax-free death benefit to buy the company where the family pays no tax to sell and the purchaser's basis gets increased. Now, of course, if this was a C-Corp, that wouldn't have really done anything for the shareholders, but it did for a partnership and would for a pass-through. And so to your point, each structure is a little different objectives of the business owner, if we're looking at it as a business strategy, who we're going to sell to, who the other owners are, all make a difference on the best strategy. Where the premiums are going to come from, all of those things. So the, so the key point is we're going to split the premiums, we're going to split the benefit, and how that works, there's not one simple answer. It's a very fact-specific type of analysis. Well, thanks for sharing on the business exit strategies that we, you know, where we can use split dollar arrangements. We know that split dollar arrangements get used for some other purposes besides business exits, and I just wanted to spend a little time on that. Does split dollar ever get used as an employee fringe benefit? Yes, it has been used as a fringe benefit over the decades. So, for example, the company could provide the employee with the death benefit or the cash right? They need to decide what they're aiming to provide the employee and when. So since with split dollar, you can direct portions of the life insurance to different parties. Um, You can use for equity retention to attract and retain key employees. So can you give an example of how that might work? Yes. For example, the company could buy a policy. They could maintain the control and the ownership with the company and a portion of the death benefit could be provided as a fringe benefit to the employee. You could also set it up as a split dollar where the employee has imputed income, a portion of the expense of the term benefit is what they are responsible for, and the company may provide a gross up to cover the tax. These are all parts of the decision and the analysis when designing the plan. When the employee leaves, the company could give them part of the benefit as part of the termination or give them the entire policy. So what about deferred compensation? Can this strategy be used to fund, say, a non-qualified deferred compensation? Yeah, a federal district court, it was actually Miller versus Heller, addressed the use of a split dollar policy providing non-qualified deferred comp benefits as well as death benefits. An excellent discussion of this dual use can be found in the ABA book, Taxation and Funding of Non-Qualified Deferred Compensation a complete guide to design and implementation. And I think they're out to like version four of that book. You need to make sure that the retirement distributions under the non-qualified deferred comp are separate from the death benefit, which will not be taxed as income. And you need to avoid a structure that may cause the plan to be considered funded under ERISA top hat definition. You have to be very careful with how to structure those. So in... A really common strategy used in estate planning for various reasons, often estate tax planning, but also asset protection and, you know, controlling disposition for, you know, beneficiaries for whatever reason the case might be, is the use of irrevocable life insurance trusts. And we often refer to those with one of our acronyms, ILETs. Can split dollar structures be used in conjunction with ILETs? Absolutely. And it can be a very effective way to protect the death benefit from estate tax inclusion. 
And keep in mind, with life insurance, depending on where you domicile it, in 33 states, it in of itself is creditor protection. So for example, construction companies have to put up bonds. Instead of having cash sitting in the bank, you can have it sitting inside the life insurance policy, growing, and then direct the death benefit elsewhere. So we have a client who needed to maintain a lot of cash inside the business for bonding purposes, but he also had a large amount of life insurance needed to fund his estate plan. It was a very illiquid estate, with the exception of all of the cash that needed to sit inside the business for bonding purposes. So we were able to reposition that cash into a life insurance policy inside of the business and then use a split dollar arrangement to remove the death benefit from his estate. The business is retaining an interest in the death benefit to cover the cost of the premium and the rest of the death benefit is going to another one of the acronyms, his IGIT. So if you picked a personal favorite split dollar strategy, what might that be? My favorite one is the one that meets the planning needs of the client at the time they seek answers to their planning issue. For example, we have a structure where a client is able to maintain control and use of most of the living benefit, so the cash value, while moving the death benefit outside of the estate using very minimal gifting. And what about, I think you mentioned an LLC strategy. What is that strategy? Yeah, so in one particular strategy, the client will own a policy inside of an LLC. We kind of tend to prefer that because of the flexibility that the LLC provides with future ownership. With the LLC, we can have the LLC owned by a trust, and if that trust gets redone, replaced, changed in the future, it's much easier to change the ownership of the LLC than the ownership of the raw life insurance policy because we have transfer for value issues to be concerned about there. So with the split dollar arrangement, we can have the client own the LLC inside of their estate, maintain access, control, and use of the cash value inside of the policy during their lifetime, but use that split dollar arrangement in order to separate the death benefit from their taxable estate. Uh, There are special provisions. We use an insurance manager specifically inside the LLC and the split dollar arrangement to make sure we don't have any incident of ownership issues. We have a separate named person whose complete job is to be in control of the actual insurance piece, the death benefit. And so we weren't going to go into any technical details, but two terms that you used that I thought just bear clarification is why do we care about incidents of ownership? Yes. So with incidents of ownership, we could accidentally see that death benefit become included in one's taxable estate. And the other one is the transfer for value. So you referred to that and I thought we should just at least explain generally what that means. Yes. So a life insurance policy can't just be transferred to anyone or any entity and still maintain its tax-free nature of the death benefit. There are certain permitted exceptions Uh, So, for example, if you were the owner of a business and you wanted to distribute that policy from the business to you personally and you're the insured on the policy, that would be a permitted transfer, which would not trigger any sort of tax liability. 
And that's also an issue when you get into some of the islets. So I've had situations where we had an insurance policy in a non-grantor islet, and we didn't have a good way to distribute that out. The you know, fortunately, we now have all these decanting and can do some different things with trusts, so we can usually find a solution. But the key point is that you can end up taking a benefit that generally is going to be tax-free and mess that up by violating the transfer for value rules. Well, any last thoughts today, Erica? Some situations, as we were just talking about, take a non-taxable death benefit and accidentally make it taxable. So we just have to be really, really careful about the structure. Well, thanks so much for joining me on this really fun topic. As we reach the end of our episode today, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Carson Private Client, and Foster Group. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for our weekly releases. Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast does not create an attorney client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have. A Huda Media Production.